Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. A busy week on Capitol Hill as lawmakers link bank failures with debt ceiling talks, grill DOD leaders on China's balloon overflight over the United States and consider legislation to ban TikTok. Russia's latest offensive appears to bog down as Moscow steps up indiscriminate attacks on Ukrainian civilians as Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin complete three days of talks. Ukraine is calling for more weapons as Washington says it will deliver M1 tanks sooner than expected. Emmanuel Macron survives a no-confidence vote in the wake of raising France's retirement age from 62 to 64 uh, despite widespread protests Bibi Netanyahu moves ahead with his plan to shield himself from possible prosecution, and Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman General Mark Milley says Iran could develop a nuclear weapon within months should Tehran decide to do so. And speaking of Tehran, joining us today to discuss all this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend, who is with the Center for a New American Security and the co-host of the Brussels Sprouts podcast, now teaching at Sciences Po in uh, a fragrant Paris, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Good morning, everybody. Thanks very much for joining us. Uh, before we get started, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air uh, and naval warfare uh, coverage. And our coverage of the Air and Space Forces Association's annual Aerospace Warfare Symposium uh, was sponsored by GE Aerospace, Leonardo DRS, and Helicon Chemical. And our coverage of South by Southwest was sponsored by Bell and Leonardo DRS. Uh, Michael is on a very short lease, so he's going to be joining us uh, this morning briefly for the Capitol Hill update. Uh, Michael, uh, thanks very much. We're in the midst of a banking crisis, and it's impacting the outlook for raising the debt limit. Walk us through how that's going to be uh, impacting or potentially impacting uh, not just government spending, but for the purpose of our audience, defense spending specifically. So you would think that the collapse of two large regional banks would kind of temper uh, the Republicans when it comes to raising the debt ceiling. Unfortunately, the opposite uh, is true. Uh, this uh, uncertainty uh, has not caused the Republicans to change their approach on debt limit negotiations. Uh, Republican lawmakers are continuing to demand spending cuts in return for raising uh, the borrowing limit, uh, arguing that the same factors that led to the failure of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank necessitate urgency in reducing government spending. And in fact, uh, the House Budget Committee Chairman uh, Jody Arrington said now is the best time uh, to have the debt limit fight. Uh, now, we've talked earlier how Biden and McCarthy only met once in February and have not met since. If I understand, there's no discussions and no negotiations going on. And it was really after that initial meeting where President Biden said that he would not meet with McCarthy again until Republicans released their own budget. And Speaker McCarthy has said that it doesn't look like the Republicans will release their budget until May. And we hit the debt ceiling in June. So it gives very little time uh, for negotiations. But it looks like Republicans plan to propose cutting <clears throat> about $130 billion from domestic agencies and domestic spending on the non-defense side, and then asking for a cap of 1% growth annually 
for the next uh, 10 years. Uh, and Jody Arrington, uh, again, the budget committee chairman, says that he still plans to write a budget that balances in 10 years. And as we discussed last week, it's virtually impossible if you're not going to address revenue, you're not going to talk about Social Security, Medicare, and at the same time want to make the, tra- the, the Trump tax cuts uh, permanent. Uh, now, we Rosa DeLauro, as we mentioned several weeks ago, sent letters to the heads of all the agencies and departments saying, hey, if we end up going back to these 2022 spending limits, what is that going to mean for you and your department? And she got her answers back. And even though it looks like defense probably will be exempt, and we'll talk about that in a minute, um, you know, she did get a pretty uh, stark letter back from DOD saying that you know, if they had to go back to 2022 levels, that would mean cutting $100 billion from the president's budget request in order to get there. And that would really fall hardest on you know, weapons modernization aimed at countering China. Uh, canceling ship construction, delaying the Air Force's new nuclear bomber, uh, slowing U.S. efforts to build up our military presence uh, in the Indo-Pacific region. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think that, that that's a picture that um, I think both, for the most part, most parties will agree is, is too stark. And in fact, uh, Congressman Tom Cole, who's a very senior member of the Appropriations Committee and probably the successor to Kay Granger as the next senior Republican or chairman, uh, you know, actually gave credit for the higher military readiness rates to Congress for plussing up the defense budget over the last several years. And he thinks, and he said publicly, he thinks the Biden number is still too low and that he's hoping that we're going to add to it. And I talked to folks on the Armed Services Committee, uh, senior folks, uh, who say that they think that they're still going to be able to add to it in their markup. And they say that uh, Senator Jack Reed, even though publicly he has been supporting the Biden's uh, budget request, will also support uh, increases in defense spending. Now, um, that would mean that all these cuts have to come out of the non-defense uh, domestic discretionary side. I think it's important just to give a snapshot of what Rosa DeLauro got back from these agencies and departments and what it would mean for Americans and why I think this is really never going to happen. I mean, if, if, the, if the Republicans got their way, and the administration claims that it would take away the opportunity for 80,000 people to attend college, impact 6.6 million students on Pell Grants, 200,000 children would lose access to Head Start, 100,000 children would lose access to childcare. 1.2 million women, infants, and children would lose nutrition assistance. More than 400,000 families could face eviction under Section 8 housing. Meals on Wheels would be cut for 1 million senior citizens. Air traffic control towers would need to be shut down for one third of the airports. And rail safety inspections would be reduced. And reductions in TSA personnel would result in wait times at airports in excess of two hours. Uh, and you know, remember, Homeland Security is not exempt from this, and this is a big issue for Republicans at the border. But if they get the cuts that are expected, uh, Customs and Border Patrol cuts uh, would end up um, impairing the department's ability to prevent drugs uh, from entering this country. So I, I just uh, when it comes, it's very easy to to, to uh, level what numbers you want to cut by, but when you get into some specifics, I think it becomes uh, unpalatable for both sides. Uh, look, I mean, the devil in all of these are in the details, and obviously, any administration that's facing any cuts has, uh, you know, is is um, has it in its interest to sort of turn this into calamity. Uh, although I, you know, I mean, the reality is, I I increasingly am convinced, with actually a relatively small del- delta, taxpayers want more from their government. They want better air traffic control. They want better health care. They want educational opportunities. Um, you know, and, and at the end of the day, going back to a 1930s era, you're fending for yourself. It's just not that tenable. And at the end of the day, we also don't want to increase taxes, right? I mean, so we're in this nebulous region uh, and our system, I think, fundamentally works differently 
than a lot of other uh, countries, right? I mean, you can make profit on healthcare, whether to the government or to anybody else, and other nations, for example, constrain that. But we live in a very capitalist system, and at the end of the day, that's that's what it's all geared for. How does this uh, end up, right? I mean, Michael, I mean, you said that we're uh, running out of time, uh, right? The Congress has got a lot of other stuff that's in front of it, right? The Energy and the Commerce Committee uh, heard uh, from uh, Xu uh, Chu, the CEO of uh, TikTok, um, you, you know, the China concerns, people want to spend more money, but how reasonable is this to do if we just can't increase on a, agree on a, on a debt uh, increase, right? I mean, some would argue now is not the time, uh, right? Pushing back against Arrington on uh, the, the time to do this. How, how does this all play out in your sense really quickly before we talk about uh, nominations and, and the TikTok hearings and what they mean in the broader China context? Well, it's a good question. And, and I, I really don't know. Uh, I, I got to believe in the end that we're not going to default on our debt. I think, you know, most senior Republicans have said that. Um, that's, and, and I appreciate that. You know, also, I think it hurts the negotiating position going in with the president, because if he knows we're not going to default, then he, it, this game of chicken will continue. Uh, but I did speak to a, a Republican who has a seat at the leadership table yesterday, um, who also kind of alarmed me as to where things are going, because he actually said to me that, uh, he felt that if we do do a debt ceiling deal, it will be just a one-year deal. And I looked at him like, you got to be kidding me. You want to go through this all over again next year? He said, we probably will have to do that. Now, I'm hoping that he's wrong uh, because they don't think in the end they're going to get this $130 billion cut. They think they'll probably have to compromise at half of it. So if they get half, that's why they're going to want to break it into two tranches and do two debt ceiling deals instead of one. Uh, I, I still think that's completely unworkable. I can't imagine the Senate going along with that or the White House, but this is going to go on for quite some time. And even though we're supposed to reach the debt ceiling um, at the end of extraordinary measures in June, there's no set date yet. And there's still some belief that this can be dragged out through the summer. So Congress does not do anything, unfortunately, and this is a deadline facing them. And without a deadline uh, right in front of them, I don't see any progress uh, being made on this for quite some time. Um, you uh, were at... Uh, the uh, Hill and Silicon Valley uh, Forum, uh, a new coalition of lawmakers, uh, as well as um, Silicon Valley uh, VC and technology uh, folks, venture capitalist Jacob Helberg uh, is the founder of it, Palantir uh, founder Peter Thiel was there, Senator Mark Warner, uh, representatives McCall and Gallagher, among others, uh, were at the dinner. I'm not going to ask you to discuss any of those specifics, um, but, you know, and then the uh, following day, uh, that dinner was on Wednesday, and yesterday we heard uh, from uh, TikTok uh, and lawmakers about how to ban or at least control uh, Chinese social media platforms in the United States. How is this playing out? Talk to us in, in as much as you can about the coalition and what it hopes uh, to accomplish ultimately. Yeah, so you're right. I mean, I think uh, this week's been a really big China week. It was not just the Energy and Commerce Committee yesterday that held hearings, but also uh, the House Foreign Affairs Committee. I uh, had Secretary Blinken testifying, a lot of that focused on China. And then we also had another select committee hearing on China focusing on, on the Uyghurs. Um, so, look, I, you know, I think, uh, you know, the CEO of TikTok really um, got battered pretty badly by both sides during this hearing. Um, but I will say, you know, I think he took it very well, uh, except there was one a question I don't think he did a very good job of answering. He, when he was asked about allegations that ByteDance, you know, the company that owns TikTok, uses the app to spy on Americans, um, 
you know, Zhu Chu said, I don't think spying is the right way to describe it. And that did not uh, go over very well uh, with the lawmakers in the room and, and those, you know, outside the room. Um, but you mentioned the Hill and Valley Dinner, and I think it was, um, obviously I can't go into too much, too many specifics, but I think it was a great concept, a great idea to bring together, um, you know, the folks from Silicon Valley, there was a lot of venture capitalists, a lot of uh, uh, new companies there, uh, as you mentioned, a lot of senior leaders in Congress, both Republicans and Democrats, in the key national security committees, and I think it's you know it's kind of a way to counter this military civil fusion that the Chinese have been very good at, and I think we need to get better at in in in, in harnessing our technology and making it easier to do business with the Department of Defense. And you know, one of the folks that was there who spoke, um, you know, said that this is not a Republican versus Democrat issue; it's a bipartisan issue, and he's correct, and, and it was reflected by the people that were invited there. And he really made it clear to the group that, you know, much more is at stake here than just national security. You know, whoever wins the tech race is going to dominate economic power and political influence globally. And that we should not take for granted that America and its Western allies will be the ones that dominate at the end of the day. And there was a lot of you know, attention focused, for example, on AI. You know, where he reminded everyone that, you know, in China's most recent five-year plan, they've said this is a race that they have to win. Um, right. And the Chinese took notice of this dinner, and you know their, you know their newspaper, you know the Global Times that they control, came out swinging, you know saying the Hill and Valley anti-China alliances touting of hysterical decoupling and vicious competition can only harm others uh, and the U.S. itself, uh, and went on to talk about why there should be continued cooperation between our companies and theirs, of course, and they can continue to to steal our technology. So, look, I think you know with everything that's going on in the Hill and all the hearings, I think we're still in the discovery and information phase, but I, I am confident that in the end that some solutions will come out of this and hopefully there'll be bipartisan solutions and the committees of jurisdiction will take those over uh, and then we'll be able to go from there. Uh, and uh, really quick, uh, talk to us about nominations in the picture. Yeah, so, you know, we talk about the, the wheels of government not turning uh, very well, or very effectively. And this is just another unfortunate example where, you know, Biden's been unable to get some of his key people uh, confirmed to top posts, including, you know, the Pentagon. And uh, earlier this week, about 50 former high ranking uh, national security and, and Pentagon officials uh, sent an open letter to the Senate you know, expressing their frustration uh, about just just two of these folks that are being held up. One is uh, Rada Plum to become the Pentagon's second highest ranking acquisition official and also Laura Taylor Kale uh, to run industrial policy. You know, and it's a really crazy tale. I mean, initially, uh, Senator Dan Sullivan from Alaska had put a hold on these nominations to get more information from the Biden administration on a delayed permit for a, uh, building a mining project in Alaska. Then the Democrats from Colorado held up a vote uh, due to the decision to move Space Command from Colorado to Alabama. Now, that hold has been lifted and Taylor Kate's been cleared for confirmation, but there's no time has been set. But Plum you know, continues to be held up now by Democratic Senator Chris Murphy because uh, he's upset about the Army's decision not to award a virtual uh, future vertical lift contract to Sikorsky. And even if they can overcome those objections, we mentioned about a week or two ago that Senator Tupperville from Alabama says he's going to do everything he can to hold up the confirmation process of both civilian and uh, military personnel um, over the abortion policy that uh, Lloyd Austin is, is, is enforcing over there. So it's uh, you know, not, not in the best interest of our national security not to have our top people in place. Uh, and we still, Nick Girton uh, is waiting uh, for his confirmation as well as Navy acquisition executive, right? I mean, so sure. this, is, yes. uh, this is a much broader train wreck uh, this late into uh, an administration. But 
a great strategy if you want to hamper the efficacy of an administration. Michael, thanks very much. Uh, really appreciate it, however nefarious that might be. Uh, really appreciate it. Thanks very much uh, for joining us. Look forward to having you on again next week. Thanks so much. Great. Thank you. Dove, let me just give you a quick uh, moment to comment on uh, what uh, Michael said, because you also met with Ken Calvert uh, over the course uh, of the week. What's sort of the message that you took away from, from that meeting? Well, two things, uh, well, three, actually. The first is uh, that uh, the speaker uh, is very much, want, very much involved in um, national security issues, DOD issues. Uh, it appears much more than his predecessor. So McCarthy is focusing on that. That's number one. And that's important because after all said and done, he's, he is the speaker. Secondly, uh, they are looking for uh, reforms which ties into my third point, defense isn't gonna get a lot more money this year, at least not coming out of the House side, if they get any more than the administration's asked for. And I suspect Mike uh, has, and I know Mike has talked about that, but it's gonna square into this idea that there have to be reforms. Uh, Ken Calvert, as everybody I think knows, uh, is looking to cut down on personnel, uh, on uh, staff in the OSD, uh, maybe staff elsewhere. Again, uh, it's to, to find money to offset uh, what are otherwise going to be uh, a far less growth in defense than uh, we had last year. Uh, it is uh, certainly going to be interesting to see how all of this uh, plays out. Uh, in the meantime, we also have other wolves uh, at the door, and, and Jim is in one of those places. Uh, unfortunately, Paris is one of the world's most beautiful cities, the City of Light, uh, and it is also sadly uh, fragrant uh, with the scent of rotting garbage, burning garbage, uh, tear gas, <laughs> tear gas. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, and, and all manner of other things. Uh, King Charles, uh, King Charles's first overseas visit since ascending to the throne was supposed to be to Paris. Uh, and he has canceled that uh, visit. And, uh, and Jim, you know, you sent us some pictures, uh, you know, saying kill the king. Uh, I think the French have sadly experienced with that. And so if you might be a reigning monarch, you might want to steer clear. More broadly, Emmanuel Macron is a critical figure in transatlantic security, in international security, and indeed in getting Europeans much more focused on the Asia Pacific. At almost every level, you talk to really uh, smart French folks who are engaged in the Asia Pacific problem uh, and, and want France to play an important role in the region. And obviously, Macron, after some initial criticism, has emerged a leader in, 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 in Ukraine. He survived a no-confidence vote after uh, raising the retirement age from 62 to 64, absolutely critical to keep the French state sov- uh, solvent. I think the biggest issue was, you know, Jupiter ramrodded this thing uh, through, uh, even though uh, Charles de Gaulle had used uh, the same mechanisms to do so. How stable is Macron and what's at stake if he loses, right? I mean, he, he, he won the no-confidence vote, uh, but his position is still very tenuous. What's at stake here? Well, his his uh, position is a five year position. And unlike in the U.S. where you can be uh, impeached, that doesn't happen here. So he's going to be here for five years. Um, what's uh, at, what's at stake are some other things that, that we can talk about. But let me first first say about that photo of Kill the King. That wasn't referring to uh, King Charles III. That was referring to Macron because right. and it goes back to something that you said um, Macron, is, I think the people are upset here 
a, a number of them are upset about the uh, the pension reform, but I would say there's a almost equal number that are that are upset. Uh, not that he, not so much that he, that he used that instrument, but the way he, the way in which he did it, right. and also the fact that this is feeding into this idea that he is just acting like a king. Uh, and right. so, so much of the protests, I was there yesterday at this manifestation. And let me tell you, I have never, I've gone to many protests in Washington, many, uh, and I have not seen something as huge and as different as this is. And I know that's not what we're here to talk about, right. but I will say based on what people are saying here, that uh, so much of the concern is that he is acting like someone he said he was not going to act like, Right. that he was going to be more consultative, et cetera. And so really so much of this is about Macron himself. Uh, and he has also uh, antagonized the unions, which are very powerful here. Uh, and so he's, he's got a, a raid against his government, a, a, a pretty wide band of people within France. So in terms of stability for him, you know, the, there was two votes of confidence. He won both of them, but, but, uh, but, but but barely squeaked by on the first one it, by nine votes. If he had lost that, it would have been uh, his uh, prime his prime minister Elizabeth Bourne and and the cabinet that would have that would have dropped out, and he would have had to put together a cabinet. He could have also uh, abolished um, the sitting uh, National Assembly and had new elections too. But 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 what what he has done here is he's rolled the dice because he's this is his last term. He's going to be here for five years. He has nothing to lose in terms of being reelected. Uh, that's the first thing. The second thing is there's a lot of concern that Le Pen is going to be the winner uh, if he comes out mortally wounded. Uh, and, uh, in, in, you know, and a few years from now, there'll be an, an election where she's got a much better shot at whoever it is that, that runs against her. So there's this there's this feeling that he has uh, that now's the time for him to act on things that are unpopular, but that he feels should happen in terms of reforming the, 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 the country. Uh, but the way he's gone about it uh, in their eyes is it's very heavy handed. Uh, and so a lot of allies that would have been there have now switched uh, and are now uh, you know, criticizing him. He went on television uh, two days ago at one in the afternoon um, and a little press conference uh, with the two major TV stations that infuriated everyone because he was blaming the unions. Uh, he was saying other things and it just poured fuel on the fire. So, right. so, uh, it, so he, I think in terms of how stable is he, he's gonna be here for five years. After that, I don't know. Um, I, but I do think that um, he has said that he's moving forward. He's not going to be looking behind him. Uh, and whether it's dealing with Ukraine or dealing with the uh, Indo-Pacific or transatlantic relations, he's still going to be on that. He, uh, he feels that he does not have to find himself uh, consumed by these domestic politics. Bourne might be, you know, his prime minister, but he's above that. Uh, and he, if he's going to play a hand in foreign policy, he's going to continue to do that. Uh, it is uh, going to be uh, fascinating to watch, and it's going to be even more fascinating to watch uh, if uh, and when uh, is is the perception that Marine Le Pen uh, takes over. I mean, somebody who's been supported uh, by the Kremlin and continues, unfortunately, to be supported by the Kremlin uh, and, and the impact that's going to have. Speaking about disruptive uh, influences, uh, Dove, uh, give us a quick walkthrough uh, on Boris Johnson's appearance uh, before uh, Parliament, uh, where he got, as they would say uh, in Britain, a right proper grilling. Yeah, he appeared before what's called the Privileges Committee, which is like our ethics committees. 
And basically, they pretty much gave him hell. His his whole case is, yeah, I made a mistake, but I didn't really mean it. I didn't, you know, it wasn't deliberate and so on. Actually, it's creating a problem as much for the prime minister, Rishi Sunak, as for him. And the reason is that uh, the question becomes how long a suspension might be. And if a suspension, which everybody expects to happen, is more than 10 days, then all of a sudden there has to be a by-election, which is sort of an off-year election, as it were, uh, in Johnson's district, because now he has to run again. That creates a problem for Sunak because he doesn't know how that will play out. Does Johnson win? And that gives him more oomph. Does Johnson lose? And that makes the conservatives look bad. So it's not just about Johnson. It's about Sunak, the prime minister, and it's about the conservative party. In other words, Johnson has continues, like other leaders of other countries, to make a massive mess. Uh, and uh, we, we should uh, point out, right, that this was uh, about, right, I mean, t- t- tell the audience what this was exactly about, right, because Boris oh, Johnson yeah. did so many things that the Privileges well, Committee would, would want to delve into, right? Well, I'll just give you one. The big one was he has this going away party and during COVID, and he's serving whiskey. And so everybody's saying, well, wait a minute, what, why were you serving whiskey? And he goes, well, you know, we always t- drink a toast. And so they gave him hell over that. I mean, the fact of the matter is the guy was breaking all the rules that his government was making. And uh, somehow uh, he still thinks he's Teflon and he can get away with it. And the problem for the party and for the prime minister is they can't really let him get away with it. And then the question, as I said, is how long is he suspended? Because I don't think they want uh, another election at this time for Uh, any, much less his. And, and you were saying, you know, uh, is is, uh, you know, the conservative party is is actually not popular now. Right. I mean, so this is feeding into uh, well, the labor well, campaign that you can't trust these guys as far as you can throw. Well, them. here's the thing. They're actually gaining again because Sunak has steadied everything. Inflation has right. gone up, but the economy seems stronger. People feel that there's no you know, things have settled down. And so the last thing they want is more disruption because he's actually picking up some points on uh, the Labor Party, and there's still 18 months to go. And and, and of course, uh, since there's 18 months to the election, it ain't over till, as Yogi Berra says, it's over. Uh, exactly. One of uh, one of history's great philosophers. Um, Jim, uh, talk to us a little bit about the war and where we are. Russian offensive has bogged down. Uh, and every time that happens, the Russians um, more indiscriminately tend to hit apartment blocks and, and the like. Um, you know, she and Putin met uh relatively inconclusively and i want to go around the horn on that patrick i want to hear from you uh next on what the outcome of that is sort of where are we where are we going the united states agreeing to send uh armor more quickly uh europeans uh agreeing to transfer more capability there's a lot of training uh that's going on right and so it looks like the the ukrainians are getting on step for their offensive uh, as 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 the Russians really do bog down and have taken just simply staggering casualties. Walk us through sort of where we are, where we're going, and what the Xi-Putin meeting uh, means and, and what are the sort of the interesting elements of it you gleaned uh, over the past week. Well, well, if I could, let me go back to Yogi Berra for a second uh, and the war that's currently going on in France and just say that like Yogi Berra, it ain't over till it's over for Macron as well. I wanted to just mention that uh, while he his his 
legislation was forced through the National Assembly, it has to go through a legal review by the high court. Uh, and there's also issues come that will come around for implementation. So as someone told me yesterday, he rolled the dice, uh, but those dice are still rolling. They're not, there's, they, it's not double sixes yet. Uh, so just wanna say there's more to follow on this. Um, in terms of the other war, Ukraine, uh, yeah, you're right. There is, there is some marginal news. Uh, I think the EU is working on a, uh, a one million round package that the nations are gonna put money towards. Uh, I think it's 155 millimeter ammo, uh, or I don't know what else they might be doing with that, but they're coming together to do some joint purchases, ammo being the top one. Uh, and that's great. This is how we want the EU to work and their military capability. We want them to work together. We want them to do this efficiently and ammo is definitely the priority. Um, we've also heard that there is training going on and I, I keep hearing that there's gonna be some uh, jet aircraft training that's actually going to, on too. familiarization with the Mirage and I guess with Tornado and I don't know any details but we're creeping towards uh, the West providing some Western aircraft, I'm hoping. Although I'd rather see F-16 training than, than, than Mirage and Tornado. But, uh, but so uh, there is some, some, some increase and in, there was a new uh, uh, issuance of assistance from the US as well. And I found interestingly, and, and I was glad to see that, and on this latest list of a couple of days ago, uh, fuel trucks were on there. And if they're gonna use M1, A1s, they're gonna need fuel trucks. So right. I was glad to see that. That's, that's, that's a sign of a serious, uh, logisticians uh, support for a, for an offensive. Um, I should also I, I should I should also yeah. briefly point out right. I mean, uh, North Macedonia agreed to transfer four of its uh, Su twenty five Frogfoot aircraft uh, to Ukraine as well. Another airplane that the Ukrainians would be able to use, following up on uh, the Polish uh, and uh, 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 Slovenian. Well, Slovak, excuse me, uh, Slovak uh, aircraft right. that have been transferred. Yeah, and what's important about the Frogfoot, if I'm remembering my Warsaw Pact days, uh, uh, and uh, Patrick, you can correct me on this, but I think the Frogfoot is a good, uh, it's a good uh, low, al low altitude, if you will, close air support tank killing. I mean, it's like the A-10, as I remember. It's, right. it's, 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 not a, it's not a fighter, if you will, or a fighter bomber. It's something that uh, is uh, close air support oriented, although they do theirs differently than ours. But, but so that's that's good. But it's only four, and you know that's unfortunate. But so we got to keep moving forward. That's happening now. Uh, and and did you shall we talk about the Z visit? Yes, uh, please take us uh, take us there. And Patrick, want to get your sense on what you thought are the uh, key takeaways, and and then uh, Dove yours. Go ahead. Well, on the Z visit, uh, I, I would say just two takeaways. The first takeaway is the dog that didn't bark. <laughs> because I think all of us were holding our breath in terms of what the Chinese might announce in terms of a lethal transfer. And we certainly didn't hear that uh, publicly at least. And we certainly did read in uh, a lot of the communiques and public statements that came out, language about the UN charter and other things that were kind of surprising to see. It wasn't the no holds barred language that we had seen in the past about the relationship between those two. Instead, uh, it looked a little bit like, uh, and this is a, for Patrick, but it seemed like maybe the Chinese were holding Putin at uh, arm's length a bit uh, and uh, telling him not so fast, we're the ones in charge here. So I, I leave that to, to Patrick, who's an expert, but I found that interesting, both what was said and what wasn't said. Patrick, uh, you know, Jim uh, makes uh, a great 
point. There were uh, other rhetoric, right? The Russians would help uh, the yuan uh, become sort of a more global currency, undermine uh, the dollar. Um, a lot of Russians were very unhappy with the meeting, saying our president should not be subservient to the Chinese. You can't trust them. Uh, so the drawing closer, you know, I mean, even public commentators were criticizing uh, the, the visit on, on television, right? From, from your perspective, what were the key takeaways from this visit? And Dove, want to get uh, your sense as well before we sort of move to broader Asia-Pacific news. Well, as always with Chinese diplomacy, it's multidirectional, including it was aimed at uh, Putin and Moscow as well. But uh, this was hardly Xi standing up as the great peacemaker, the way he was sort of uh, heading to Moscow with his 12 points uh, of peace, uh, failing to call Zelensky and really not uh, giving any quarter to a, the idea of a, a serious peace effort. Um, so while he, he didn't come down with lethal aid toward Moscow, there are some significant military dimensions to what they did talk about. And I'll get to that in just a second. I think mostly, though, it was political rhetoric. It's the it's the new world order. Uh, it's the community with a shared future of mankind, uh, which was a phrase that she first used in Moscow 10 years ago um, and uh, has been talking about ever since in terms of displacing the United States. The two leaders did put out a highly propagandistic sort of communique, joint statement, decrying the U.S.-led order, you know, blaming the U.S. for Nord Stream pipeline, politicizing COVID, blaming Japan for Fukushima-tainted water release, you know, referring, alluding to the Dietrich Biolab conspiracy theory bunk. Uh, decrying AUKUS as a nuclear danger, spreading color revolutions. So they had all of the best hits of the revisionist powers there. Um, you know, David Ignatius said this was she uh, posing as president of Eurasia. Um, Josh Rogan talked about how these two, uh, you know, dictators want to the mantle of democracy, even while they want to rule as dictators. Uh, and all of that seems to be true. I think in terms of what the real substance, though, um, no lethal arms, Jim's right, very telling about Beijing wanting to put some distance between itself in this war. Um, but they're preserving their options, right? So if there are uh, increases of uh, of arms to Ukraine um, and Russian forces look like they're really in retreat, I think China's got the options of being the arsenal of autocracy. Secondly, um, even the oil pipeline, Siberia 2 pipeline deal, not inked, not finalized. That seems very strange. They've been increasing their uh, trade and aid. Uh, China wants that uh, oil, and yet you know, they didn't even finalize something that was, seemed obvious. But the military dimension, so the, yeah, they talked about more exercises and military tech cooperation, that's been a concern, um, but most concerning is the nuclear dimension. So uh, a long-term cooperation on fast neutron reactors, this coming three months after Russia transferred 25 tons of highly enriched uranium, that's going to provide 50 nuclear warheads a year, perhaps, for the PLA as it breaks out on its nuclear arsenal here in the decade ahead. Uh, and there's also, I think, a nuclear dimension to the multipolar world. Um, and that, so when they keep talking about this multipolar world, on one hand, yes, they're trying to basically make the U.S. a bad brand in the global south, um, but they're also trying to uh, essentially encourage Iran and North Korean nuclear efforts. Uh, I don't see any alternative to this. And in fact, when you think about what Iran is doing right now and what North Korea is doing, <clears throat> we need to talk about that just a minute, <clears throat> including this underwater nuclear drone that's been secretly worked on for the last uh, you know, 11 years uh, by uh, Kim Jong-un, it just shows you that the nuclear programs of, of countries like North Korea and Iran continue to get more and more support, I think, or at least leeway from, from China and, and Russia. 
Um, I want to uh, go there in a minute, but I want to let uh, Dove uh, weigh in uh, because obviously uh, the Russians and Vladimir Putin has been talking about ultra long range uh, nuclear powered, nuclear tipped uh, undersea vehicles that could range for many men- months, uh, penetrate harbors, uh, right? So if, if you think you're going to develop an anti-missile system that's going to thwart our capabilities, we will decide to use uh, asymmetric capabilities to deliver uh, or to hold a nuclear scepter over uh, your your head. And I think uh, Kim Jong-un being a crafty, uh, thoughtful, disruptive uh, power uh, is is looking at the same thing. We'll, we'll come to that in just a minute. Dove, I mean, your sense on what the takeaways from uh, the meeting uh, were? Well, uh, uh, Jim and Patrick covered 99% of them, so I'll just give you the, the what I think are the remaining 1%. Uh, first of all, uh, they are definitely cooperating when it comes to uh, showing that they can promote mediation amongst difficult states, uh, particularly, say, Turkey, Syria, Iran, uh, and of course, what uh, she did in in Iran and Saudi Arabia, which the uh, Russians welcomed, by the way. Uh, And so that's very important. In other words, yes, they don't trust each other. I mean, that's the second point. Um, We know uh, that the Chinese have stolen a lot of Russian stuff to build up their own military. I mean, it's not just us. They're, They're equal opportunity thieves. And so there's always going to be distrust. Plus, quite frankly, there's still a lot of racial distrust on both sides. Uh, But when it comes to uh, showing that they can talk to everyone, whereas we have, whether we can't or we've chosen not to, they can bring stability outside Europe. We, they're arguing, cannot. And so that is part of their uh, appeal to the uh, global south and frankly, anybody outside Europe, that if they really want to uh, have progress, they need to look to Moscow and Beijing, who will work together on those issues, uh, and uh, not to us, because we just cannot uh, bring people together the way these people argue they can. And so uh, that, I think, is very important. And the fact that the two leaders did get together that way and Yes, that it, it, you know, you had to look at what wasn't said, as Jim pointed out, uh, and of course, what, what Patrick said, but there's this other message as well. Uh, if you want to resolve issues, uh, don't go to Washington, come to us. Indeed, and, and certainly uh, an interesting message, especially after the, in the wake of the uh, Saudi-Iran-China deal that we discussed, even though I think some of the ramifications of that may be uh, somewhat overwrought. Um, Patrick, I mean, your sense sort of regionally, uh, what are sort of the key headlines that folks ought to be paying attention to, right? Uh, there was uh, a, a discussion, and of course, Michael discussed it at the top of the show uh, on TikTok, uh, you know, in a balloon hearing uh, this week where um, uh, Secretary Austin uh, and Chairman Milley were grilled. Uh, and it was uh, during this uh, that uh, the uh, Chairman Milley uh, you know, made clear that the Iranians could develop a nuclear weapon in uh, a couple of months uh, should Tehran decide to do so. But let's talk about sort of the broader sort of China Asia news flow that we should be paying attention to, uh, as well as um, you know how to think of our North Korean friends who continue to be a disruptive uh, force regionally. Sure. Um, well, let me start with the technology side because you know we're dealing with. Uh, two sides of this coin on technological competition with China. One of them is uh, on the technological competition that things like the Chips and Science Act is trying to rectify and keep our lead and competitiveness 
on semiconductor chips and imposing export controls on Huawei and uh, and other technologies. Um, I think the uh, you know the other side, what we saw with TikTok, is you know the information side of the technology in the digital age. Uh, and there, we're trying to support our our, our data uh, uh, protection, um, protect our political system, protect our society from malign foreign inf- infer- interference and influence. But in the case of TikTok, you've got a lot of pitfalls here, right? I mean, one pitfall is that this maybe is it looks like a piecemeal approach, singling out one app. Uh, it's a it's a pitfall because it looks like a war against youth. Um, it's a pitfall because you know it cracks down on the First Amendment, as some would argue. It's a it's a pitfall because you you could lose Chinese investment. That's what the foreign that's what the Commerce Ministry of China threatened uh, if uh, we tried to divest uh, force the divestiture of TikTok from ByteDance, the Chinese owned uh, owner. Um, and also, it's a, a pitfall because it could spoil the diplomacy. The idea that Secretary Blinken may finally get to China. Uh, next month on the margins of a G7 foreign ministers conference. But those things are, are while well, they're pitfalls, they, they, they still are secondary to the national security concerns that are now uniformly and uh, you know shared uh, bipartisan in U.S. and also internationally with our key allies that have been trying to restrict this app, uh, TikTok, from, from certainly government platforms. Um, so we've got a lot of work to, to be done well beyond TikTok. And it's very interesting to read about things like this uh, Capitol Hill, Silicon Valley, anti-China alliance that's forming on technology. All of this is a piece that the technological arena is indeed uh, front and center in the U.S.-China competition, and it's going to continue to get more intense. And, and the world is watching that, uh, and we'll talk about that in the coming weeks. I think, you know, back to good old-fashioned war footing, uh, you know, on the Korean Peninsula, uh, you had major allied exercises just in this week, Freedom Shield, Warrior Shield exercises, the largest uh, field exercise in five years, by the Allies. Uh, meanwhile, North Korea fired 16 missiles of all different types, close-range ballistic missiles, sea-launched cruise missiles that were nuclear-capable, uh, short-range ballistic missiles that could have nuclear warhead, uh, a Hwasong-17 ICBM, uh, four different uh, cruise missiles. Um, and, and supposedly, Kim Jong-un releasing in his state press that he had observed 29 tests since 2012, since he came to power, in effect, um, of this uh, uh, new underwater a vehicle, a, a underwater launched nuclear drone that they said, quote, could cause a super scale radiation tsunami, unquote. Now, that's, of course, if it can get off of its shores, uh, you know, and it can fire uh, and a lot of other ifs. And we're not even sure if it's operational yet. But it just shows you a couple of things. One is that North Korea has been working secretly on nuclear weapons that they don't talk about, despite all the diplomacy that would, would have maybe committed them to denuclearization. Forget that. Um, but also, uh, they are they are still a paranoid regime that's you know, looking for missiles in all different azimuths and trajectories to deter the United States, to try to prove that they're a permanent nuclear weapon state, and to try to impose a cost on allies for conducting readiness uh, exercises, as in these new military drills. So more to continue here on the Korean front uh, with extended deterrence debates uh, continuing with our ally. I think uh, elsewhere in the region, you've had Kurt Campbell down anchoring in the in the sort of New Zealand, uh, talking about cyber and, and tech cooperation in the wake of the AUKUS agreement with Australia, UK, and US. Um, and he's been going through some of the Pacific Islands, starting with maybe the hardest uh, islands, uh, you know, the Solomon Islands, because the Chinese have sort of turned uh, the Solomon Islands and Sogavari's fourth stent as sort of the leader down there into a into a China uh, happy uh, regime, um, and yet. Kirk Campbell went right there and with aid and, and tried to 
uh, make sure that we were making good on our commitments and keeping them at least balancing their interests, not just with China, but with other actors, including the U.S. Um, we're going to be hosting a lot of things this week. Uh, the Democracy Summit, which is going to happen in four different capitals, one of which is South Korea, but also the Netherlands, Costa Rica, and Zambia. Um, that's going to be happening the same time that the State Department will be hosting quietly the Vietnamese uh, officials to talk about several uh, initiatives to advance relations, proving that even though we'll be talking democracy publicly, we'll also be dealing pragmatically with other partners like Vietnam that are very important for our interests in the, in the Indo-Pacific. Um, Prime Minister Kishida was in Delhi with, uh, with, with, with Prime Minister Modi. Um, you know, you have the host there of the G7 and the G20 this year. Uh, working together on uh, infrastructure commitments uh, and other key ideas on uh, in support of also the quadrilateral security initiative that includes Australia and the U.S. Um, and we'll uh, see me, more of that. Uh, and yes. Let me just briefly uh, bring uh, Jim uh, back into this, right? Patrick has been talking about um, a lot of agreements on New Zealand, uh, the Dutch being involved in it. From a French uh, standpoint, right? I mean, the whole AUKUS deal uh, was a grave insult. There was a sense that the French would be brought into this uh, somehow. Just really quickly, and Patrick, if, if you can weigh in on this as well, what's the plan? What are we hearing from the White House on how the French get brought into this somehow as an important Asia-Pacific power? Because if I was sitting in the White House, I would want the French engaged and engaged sort of by agreement while Emmanuel Macron is still sitting in Paris, uh, because the French are very good at honoring the agreements that they've struck. Uh, frankly, it is not purely situational in how they approve, uh, approach those uh, and to expand it and bring the Japanese and create something that's um, a little bit more formal and, and broader. Go, go ahead, uh, Jim, uh, and then Patrick, give us your sense. And then uh, we'll end it with uh, Dove sort of giving us his broader sense uh, on uh, Iran and, and happenings in Israel, which are important. Go ahead. Well, for sure, the French are are knocking heavily on the door in Washington to, to get involved. This is something that they, uh, you know, past is past. Uh, they, they might forgive, but they won't forget. But uh, they want to take part in this very much. And I'm sure, as you were saying, it's an open door in Washington as well. We know France has a permanent presence uh, in the Pacific, and uh, they routinely uh, send ships and this type of thing down there. But what it what it's all about, though, is the broader aspect of AUKUS and getting into a lot of the high tech stuff that is you know, hypersonics and this type of thing that they definitely want to be part of. So um, I don't I don't see there being a problem either in Paris or in Washington about the French being involved. I'm so certain the French I mean, the U.S. wants the French involved. There's high tech that the French do that would be helpful here. And for France, remembering too, that there's still a submarine market in the Indo-Pacific, and uh, they've got submarines to, to sell. So this is not a bad thing for them in terms of being part of the big game that's now come to the Pacific. So um, I, my guess is uh, that this is already going on uh, and that my old colleagues in the Pentagon are, if they're listening to this, are probably saying, Jim, we're already doing this. That's my guess. We have a little bit of breaking news, uh, Dove Zakheim. Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> They've just arrested in India the uh, Rahul Gandhi of the famous Gandhi family. Uh, his, you know, mother was or grandmother, I guess, was prime minister. Uh, he is uh, leader of the opposition and he's just been arrested. And the reason was that some years ago he said there were thieves named Modi. 
So because of that, they arrested him. He's been kicked out of parliament. And uh, many people say that uh, Mr. Modi is uh, part of the club of autocrats. And uh, even Netanyahu and Orban have not yet arrested their leaders of the opposition. So it's, it's really quite a development. And, and as, as Patrick says, at a time when uh, the Japanese prime minister is just over there or has just been there. Uh, Dove, uh, really quick, what does the Iran uh, news mean? Uh, unfortunately, uh, a contractor killed, Americans injured, the U.S. Uh, uh, striking uh, in Syria. Uh, we have the bomb issue. And then talk to us a little bit about Bibi Netanyahu, who is completely undeterred, demonstrations or not, uh, to drive forward in the Knesset past. Uh, you know, he's he's now he's he now is the only person who can fire himself and and not the Supreme Court, which is never good for any uh, democracy. G- give us your sense on both of these issues as we wrap up uh, on Iran. I mean, this isn't the first time we've retaliated and it is noteworthy. We retaliate in Syria. So we're we're still fighting uh, a, a shadow war, not to the extent the Israelis and Iranians are. Uh, but remember, I mean, we did take out uh, a major Iranian leader not all that long ago. The Iranians said they'd retaliate. This is this is the tit for tat that continues. And, and of course, we do have about, uh, you know, uh, some small number of troops in Syria nominally to uh, support the Syrian uh, uh, opposition to Assad and to fight ISIS pockets, but also to uh, let the Iranians know that we're just not going to give them a free hand. Uh, on uh, Netanyahu, the uh, parliament passed a law that uh, he can only be suspended uh, with 75% uh, of the either the cabinet or the parliament, which pretty much guarantees that he will not be able to be, sus- that, that the Supreme Court will not be able to suspend him uh, over his bribery charges. And so therefore, as you rightly said, the only man or only person who can uh, fire Mr. Netanyahu is Mr. Netanyahu himself. This is stage one. The next stage of the uh, they're having a rolling set of votes. The next one is going to be on the uh, ability of the uh, legislature to uh, essentially overrule the Supreme Court. And uh, despite the demonstrations, uh, Netanyahu is determined to go on. And and he has already been uh, censured, uh, in effect, by the administration. He got a call from Mr. Biden about this. Um, they've also passed uh, essentially a law that allows them to break a 2005 agreement and uh, build settlements on uh, areas they said they wouldn't. Uh, the Israeli ambassador was called into Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman about that. First time that's happened in many years. So the friction between Washington and Jerusalem continues. Uh, and right to be able to resuscitate um settlements in Gaza that were abandoned uh, something like a decade and a half ago? Well, not only that, the uh, this Mr. Smotrich, who is the uh, finance minister and also has a role in the defense ministry, gave a, a talk in, in the United States with a map that showed greater Israel, including not just the West Bank, but Jordan. And, and the Jordanians, uh, not surprisingly, got really upset in a very big way. Uh, and uh, the Israelis tried to patch it up. But this has left a terrible taste in the mouth uh, of uh, an, a major American ally and, frankly, a country that has worked well with Israel. Uh, Jordan, of course, is very close to the United States. And, uh, you know, right now we're in the month of Ramadan and everybody worries that uh, 
there could be another intifada and the way the Israelis are going, they're bringing it on. Uh, and uh, right. And I mean, another complexity that uh, Jordan still is struggle, uh, struggling uh, to, uh, you know, with a whole bunch of domestic pressures uh, as as well as all this plays out. Anyway, we'll take a deeper look at all this stuff when the team is together again uh, next week. Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. It's always a pleasure. Hope you guys have a terrific weekend, uh, a great week and look forward to having you guys back on again next week. And a special thanks to Bell for their generous support to make this program a reality. Thanks so very much. Hope everybody has a great weekend and we'll see you again on Sunday for the Business Roundtable. Thanks a lot.